0: Praise the Lord. How's everybody doing today? Good. Good, good. Um, We are going to be talking about an increase in stewardship today. Uh, The series is the year of increase, as you may well know, also our other uh, overarching theme of revival. So, We'll be talking about stewardship today. Uh, I don't know how many of you Google words if you've ever used that ngrams tool. It's kind of fun. Um, But I, I discovered something really interesting when you look in there, Um, it shows you like the usage of a word over time. And if you look at the word manager and you look at the word servant, about a 100 years or or so ago, servant was used a lot more than manager. And then over the 20th century, at some point they crossed, and now manager is used much more than servant is used. So what does that tell you about the way our world has changed? So I really felt in my my heart that it was a, a good time to talk about the topic of stewardship and to bring that back and put it back on our plate, uh, because I think it's something that doesn't often get the attention that it, it really deserves. Amen? So what is, what is stewardship? When we talk about being a steward, when we talk about stewardship, that word has become so foreign to the culture now, we almost have to dive back in and go right back to the definitions and to the basics. So let's take a look at that. And um, knowing me, of course, I started with the Greek uh, version of it, because I wanted to go back as far in time as I possibly could. So if you look at the Greek version of steward that we translate into English as steward, oikonomos, uh, which means somebody who manages a, a household. So you might have a slave that would manage the house. They would be in charge of the master's estate. Um, they would be the house steward. They might be a slave, wouldn't necessarily have to be. could be a hired uh, steward as well. Uh, more generally, it could be somebody who is a manager or an administrator. It's the opposite of a tyrannos, which is a tyrant, or an absolute ruler. Uh, So it could be a state official, a high financial officer under a monarch, or the title of a Christian official, but the idea is they answer to somebody else who's the ultimate ruler. And uh, in the feminine, it could also mean housekeeper or housewife, so someone who manages the house, someone who takes care uh, of the house. So which do you reflect more often? Do you reflect more often the tyrant master or the steward servant? That's what we're looking at today. Um, So we're going to focus on what it means to be the steward-servant in different areas of life. Again, from uh, Merriam-Webster's in Stewardship, going to the English side of it, this probably most captures what I felt um, we're trying to get on the biblical side. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. The things that God give us are not our own, amen? It's something that he gives us for a period of time. He puts it into our responsibility, but we're not going to have it forever. So there's a big, big difference in in what we need to do. And we are, when you're a steward servant, you're managing on behalf of someone else. When you're a master tyrant, you're just managing for yourself. It's a big, big difference, both in attitude and in outcome. And, of course, from the scripture itself, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So one of the things you need to do if you're going to be managing something on behalf of someone else is you need to be faithful in that. Amen? So increasing stewardship of finances. So the er first area we're going to look at um, is the stewardship of our finances, which the Bible actually talks an awful lot about. And one of the parables I want to look at is the parable of the talents. Now, there's sometimes a... a, um, a, a, um, tendency to over spiritualize that parable and actually the English word talent does come from this parable actually and but the talent actually started out its life as a measure of weight and then it came in to mean a measure of money and then later on it just came to mean those kinds of what we more generally call talents or God given gifts or abilities that you might have but just realize it started out meaning something as uh, 75 pounds in the Old Testament times and then in the New Testament times just a measure of money so it's about 6,000 drachmas which is 20 years wages so just think when the master comes and gives these guys talents you know he's given them if you, if they get five talents they got 100 years wages all in one bell swoop what would you do if you had 100 years wages and somebody just gifted it to you and said now here take care of it and I'll come back for it later that's a huge responsibility, right? And then he gives the other guy two talents, 40 years wages all in one fell swoop. What are you going to do with it? I mean, most of us work for about 40 years of life, right? That's like getting your whole career, lifetime earnings in just one big chunk. Okay, what are you going to do? go do with it now? And then, of course, the last guy, he got one um, talent, but one talent was still a lot of money, 20 years wages. What would you do with 20 years wages if somebody just threw it on you right now? pay off your house, go on a vacation, I mean, what would you do? Let's take a look at Matthew 25, uh, 14 to 18, the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, uh, 14 to 18, beginning the parable. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. So y- you got to wonder about these guys. So they received these phenomenal sums of money, and two guys are able to go and manage it well, and then the last guy, even though he's been entrusted with 20 years' salary, just goes and hides it in the ground. Now, that was an accepted way to you know, try to preserve something over time in the ancient world, right? I mean, you hear about pirates and buried treasure and people burying their wealth and things like that, or if somebody knows that there's something buried in a field, he goes and he buys it, all that kinds of things. Um But this really speaks to fear. It really speaks to fear. It's like, I am so afraid that I might mess it up that I just do nothing. That I just do nothing. Matthew 25, 19-21. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He says, you've been faithful over little. He gave him a 100 years wages. Is that small? Is that That's a lot. That's a lot of money. But over the course of, of the however long the master was gone, we don't know how long the master was gone. That's not told as part of the story. But uh, part of the idea is that you don't know how long the master is going to be gone. Amen? And whatever for whatever length of time he's gone, that's what you've got to do this. And it might be a career. It might be a lifetime uh, worth of cash. It's a good thing for us to pause and reflect on, too. You know, what am I doing with the money that I make over the course of my career? At the end of my life, when either I go to see Jesus or Jesus comes to, to get me, um, what will I have done with all the things that God has given to me? Matthew twenty-five, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. And he also he and he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again. This guy got 40 years of wages, and the master says, that's little. That's little. Now think of who's telling this story. Jesus Christ, the living Lord, is telling this story. I have given you a little. I've given you a little. If that is little in the Lord's book, how much is much? How much is much? How much does God really have to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory? If this is little, 40 years wages. notice something else. The guy who received the two talents and the guy who received the five talents, they both had the same reward as far as their master was concerned. He said to both of them, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. Exact same thing. So it didn't matter if you were given 100 years wages or 40 years wages or what you were given. As long as you were faithful with it, you got the same reward. Amen? So God's not looking for how much you've got or how much you've produced, but how faithful you are. How faithful you are. Matthew 25, verses 24 to 27. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received what was my own with interest. So he was so afraid he did absolutely nothing. He basically just shelved everything that he had received, shelved all the money, shelved the, the 20 years' wages, did nothing with it, and just just kept it until the master came because he was scared. It's like, what if I lose money? How many times does that stop people from doing something intelligent with their money? How many times does that stop people from doing something? T- I'll, I'm afraid I'll lose it. You know, Most people work for about 40 years of their lives. So in a sense, we've all been giving that 40 years' wages, and we have to decide what to do with it. What are you doing with it right now? You know, one day you're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, what did you do with the 40 years' wages that I enabled you to earn? What are you going to tell him? What are you going to tell him? Is he go- Are you going to have the opportunity opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. What will you do today with what you've been given today, this week, this month, this year, or during your whole career? Are you ready to tithe? Or is that a scary thing so you just stop and don't do it? What did what did the master say to the person who stopped and did nothing? You wicked, slothful servant. What does that say about our level of trust in God? 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now notice what this passage does not say. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. That it does not say. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Why? Money is just a tool. Money is just a tool. It's like a magnifying glass for your heart. If I give you a lot of money, I will find out exactly what is in your heart. Isn't it true? I mean, you look at these lottery winners, and you find out what they go and do, and they spend it on all kinds of wild living, and in three to five years, it's gone. I mean, how can somebody win $1 or $2 million, and it's gone in two to three years? I mean, what was in their heart? What was in their heart? It's a magnifying glass. You know, when God looks at you, when he looks at me, he's going to look at how you give, He's going to look at how you invest. He's going to look at how you save. He's going to look at how you spent your money. And and it speaks volumes about what's in your heart, whether you're afraid to give generously, whether you're afraid to tithe, whether you're afraid to invest of your life into people. And I know we we, we are blessed with a lot of great volunteers in our church, so don't get me wrong. I mean, but when we do that, that's an investment we're making, not just in the generation that's coming up, but in the generation here and now amen because if we're not raising up the next generation to know the Lord we're really saying we're going to be the last generation that knows the Lord think about it if we don't invest in the next generation to know the Lord we're going to be the last generation to know the Lord Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 20 Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 20 uh, 21 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You know, one of the disciplines of tithing is to free up your heart from the love of money. Because if you have the discipline to do that, then you have the discipline not to be um, a lover of money in a way that's self-destructive. So we need to learn generosity. We need to learn to be generous with our money, with our time, with our effort to build up others around us instead of tear them down. Amen? We need to value what God values. God doesn't value the money. He values the people. God values the people who are made in his image. That's what God values. You know, we need to leave this world better than when we found it. And if we build our treasure in heaven, our eternal home. I mean, I think about what, you know, Brother Ebby shared the other week about the dot and the line. Man, that has really stuck with me, (laughs) and I've been meditating over that for weeks. You know, if you invest all this money in the dot, and then your life is over, what have you gained? But if you invest your money, your time, your talent, your resources in the line, in the next generation, in the kingdom of God, in, in helping people who are in need and teaching them the word of God and bringing them to God's house and sharing with them the way to salvation, the things that are going to last forever, how much more redemptive and how much more treasure do I really have if I invest in the line versus the dots of this life? Amen? Matthew 6, verses 22 to 24, carrying on. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one. And despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Want to talk a little bit about the expression "the lamp of the body is the eye." Sometimes I read that and I'm like, "What are they talking about? The lamp is the eye." Um, But as I was looking through some commentaries and considering some of these these things, it seems like Jesus is picking up an expression that local people would have known: "the lamp of the body is the eye," and then he gives his own rabbinic interpretation, if you will. So. So just close your eyes for a moment, and what do you see? It's dark, right? You open your eyes again, and it's light. So I think that's the idea where they got you know, the eye is the lamp of the body, because if your eye is not functioning, you cannot see light at all. But there's another meaning, and Rabbi Yeshua, whom we call Jesus, makes a very Jewish comment in the context of finance here. So in the Jewish uh, New Testament world of the – of that time Judaism had an expression having a good eye having a good eye and having a good eye meant to be generous you saw someone in need you gave from your resources you had a good eye amen now today it means you're probably a good interior decorator but then it meant that you were generous okay having a good eye you're generous and having a bad eye means you were stingy You saw someone in need, you pretended not to see. You had a bad eye. You're stingy. What a perfect explanation for this parable that the Lord is teaching. That The context that light is generosity and darkness is stinginess. Light is generosity and darkness is stinginess. Look at that expression again. If Therefore, the generosity that is in you is stinginess. How great is that stinginess? You cannot serve both God and greed. You cannot serve both God and greed. God will call you to be generous, and greed will call you to be stingy. And how can you be both? How can you Increasing stewardship of our feelings. So I wanted to do the thing that was like the most concrete first, finances, but I still want to carry over some of those principles into these other life areas. So increasing stewardship of our emotions. So when it comes to your emotions, what are you? Tell me. Are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? People, <laughs> I can see people laughing already. Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? So what does the thermometer do? Let's think about it. So the thermometer, okay, I don't know what it just did. Is it coming? Okay, because up here it's just going round and round. Okay, so the thermometer shows the temperature, right? So if you're a thermometer with your motions, just whatever you've got inside is just showing right there and we all know how high the red is going, right? But if you're a thermostat, then you kind of keep that more in control. You say, you know, I'm feeling a little bit angry now. Maybe I need to step away, count to ten, <laughs> you know, cool down a little bit. Um, you know, wh- where are you at with your emotions? Okay, I've still got something going round and round up here, and I'm not sure what uh, what to make of it. Okay, what's your default emotion? What is your default emotion? A lot of us either work with computers or we, you know, know the concept of defaults. So the default is um, before anything else has happened, before any other values are set, what is the value that's going to be there? That's the default. So let's talk about what it means um, to have a default emotion. All right. So how do you feel before anything good or bad has happened to you? Okay, look at this girl. How do you think she feels right now? She feels pretty happy, pretty good. So if you have a default emotion of happy, chances are you're going to spend most of your time happy, right? Because that's your default state. That's the, If nothing else has happened, what if, what if your default emotion is just being sad or mad or bad, right? You're going to spend a lot of time in that state, right? So let's think about when we get up in the morning – What is the first thing that that you want to feel before anything else has happened? Because that's going to be the state that you're in most of the time. That's going to be the state that you're in most of the time. What do you do when the bad feelings hit you? Okay, this is about the 10,000 talents. So um, we talked about the story about the five, the two, and and the one talent. There's another story about 10,000 talents, and we'll just summarize it a little bit. But remember that a talent is 20 years' wages. So now imagine this guy comes to his master, and he owes 10,000 talents. Well, from what we learned of it being 20 years' wages, he owes 200,000 years of wages. So if you earned, just to pick a number that's easy to multiply, if you earned, let's say, $50,000 a year, that would be like owing 10 billion dollars. Now, if you earn $50,000 and you owe $10 billion, it's going to take you 200,000 years to pay it off. Are you going to live 200,000 years? I mean, Jesus is using one of his hyperboles to teach with here. This is just so obvious hyperbole. He's like, this guy owes a debt that he's never, ever going to pay. This isn't $10,000. This is like, you know, $10 billion. So he's not going to pay it off in his lifetime. It represents an unpayable debt. But his debt was forgiven. Imagine that. His debt was forgiven. The unpayable debt. You and I had an unpayable debt. An unpayable debt of sin. And if we could have worked for 200,000 years, we would not be able to pay it off. But Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it. And we should be grateful. We should be grateful. But then what does this guy do? He turns around, so he gets out of having to pay off this 200,000-year debt, and he finds a guy who owes him less than one year's wages in debt, and he chokes him and he puts him into debtor's prison until he pays it back. So what did the master come and do? You wicked servant. I forgave you so much of debt. I forgave you 200,000 years of debt and here's a guy who owes you less than one year's wages in debt and you throw him in jail. Take this guy away. Take this guy away. So there's another lesson out of this parable too. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. You've been forgiven more than 200,000 years of bad things that you could never pay off. How much more should you forgive somebody who's done so much less to you compared to what we've all collectively done for God? I mean, what we've done was enough to send Jesus to the cross. Has anybody done anything so wicked like that to you that you could not forgive them? So in addition to being a parable about managing our own emotions and not being angry over things that we should – be better able to control ourselves, it's also a parable about unforgiveness. We need to be more forgiving and to manage our emotions and to be more forgiving people. Amen? Amen. So again, and Jesus said, again, this is a parable of Jesus. So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, brother or sister from your heart from your heart. So as a steward of our emotions, I think one of the biggest battles we have to fight is the battle of unforgiveness. Sometimes we feel we have the legal right to do something, but we don't always have the moral right to do so. You might have the legal right to do something, but maybe you don't have the moral right to do so. At this period of history, we could send you to a, a jail for owing a debt. He had the right to put that guy in prison, actually. He had the right to do it. But he didn't have, he had the legal right to do it, but not the moral right to do so. Amen? Because he had been forgiven much more than what he was willing to forgive. Believers need to be aware of any emotion of unforgiveness in our lives. Amen? Any emotion of unforgiveness is not acceptable in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 12-15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Amen? So the Bible calls us to put on these emotions. Well, I don't feel like it. That's, that's the idea. I don't always feel like it, so I have to kind of put it on, like when I put on a jacket and I'm going to go outside and I know it's going to be cold. Yes, sometimes they don't flow naturally. We need to put them on anyway. If the forecast calls for rain, we carry an umbrella to be prepared for what's out there, right? So many days, brother, sister, and you know it's true. So many days we need to put on love, we need to put on patience, we need to put on forgiveness, we need to put on thankfulness just to be prepared for what's out there. Just to be prepared for what's out there. Philippians 4, 4-8. through 8, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Think on these things. You will almost never find any of these things on the evening news. I can promise you that. Evening news is very more often about death, destruction, disease, and deception, weather and sports. That's about it. It's not about these things. The Bible gives us plenty of examples of what to think about. When we think about these things, it will drive our emotional states. It will drive your emotional states. If you're always thinking about all the god-awful things that have happened in the world, all the terrible things that are happening abroad and in our own country, it's going to be difficult to manage your emotional states. But emotions are not the engine of the train. Emotions are not how we need to make decisions. Emotions are more like the caboose of the train. If you want to get good emotions, you need to make good decisions. Good decisions, and then good emotions will follow. I just gave you a tip for how to have good emotions. Okay, If you want to have good emotions, make good decisions, and good emotions will follow. Good emotions will follow. If we live with bad emotions, we're most li- more likely to make bad decisions, and then we'll live with more bad emotions. It just creates a negative cycle. We have to start making good decisions, like the decision to follow Jesus Christ like the decision to enter into God's joy, like the decision to be self-disciplined, like the decision to love, the decision to have peace, to enter into, into everything that God has for us. Galatians five twenty two and 23, famous one, I'm sure you all know it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Amen? Spiritual maturity is measured by this. Spiritual maturity is measured by the fruit of the Spirit. If we're going to be a good steward of our emotions, that means greater dependence on God's Spirit. Amen? Because when we depend on God's Spirit, this is the fruit of His Spirit that comes. If this is what I need in my life, I need to depend on God's Spirit even more, even in those times when I realize that I'm failing to experience all of these things. That's especially when I need to run to God and say, God, I need your help of our faith. You know, I I meet a lot of Christians where their faith revolves around them. And you can tell it. You can tell they've got this consumer mentality about about their faith, right? Well, I don't want to go to this church because of this and that, and I don't want to go to the other church because of that and that, and I don't like the way that guy preaches, and this one doesn't have, also have to manage our own spiritual life. We are also part of the DNA that makes up any church that we are part of. So rather than being regarded as a shopper, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Stewards of the mystery of God. We are the ones who are responsible for managing all of that stuff that God has given us. It's not just the pastor. You know, we didn't make up this faith. We didn't make up Christianity, so we can't like try to brush it up and you know airbrush it out, whatever it is that we think we don't like about it. A lot of people are doing that. There's a lot of theologies out there that are really just selfish identity politics. They're not really Christianity. We didn't make up this faith. It was given to us by the teaching, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's why it's called Christianity. It's based on Christ. It's not based on me and my preferences. Our faith revolves around Christ and not on us. We didn't invent it. We don't have the right to reinvent it. We are stewards of the deposit of faith that was given to us that Christ himself gave us. Amen? So one of the things we need to do and that's our choice and our responsibility and our stewardship to do, is to follow Christ. Amen? We follow Christ as part of our faith. Again, Christ spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You want to know what to do? You want to have the light that illuminates your path? You want to have the light that illuminates your life so you know what kinds of decisions are good decisions and which are bad decisions? Follow Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. Make it your responsibility to know his teachings, not just your pastor, not just the elders, not just the teacher, but yours. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. For where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The following Christ means that we begin our spiritual life with a prayer of confession of sin, repentance from sin, Accepting Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sin and committing the rest of our life to follow Jesus Christ. Committing the rest of our life. This isn't flavor of the month. This is a commitment for life. This is a commitment for life. When we accepted Christ as Savior, we also accepted him as Lord. We also accepted him as Lord. That's another thing that I don't hear a lot of people talk about. And if we have not made Christ Lord of all, we need to ask ourselves if we've made him Lord at all. If we've not made Christ Lord of all in our lives, we need to ask ourselves if we've made him Lord at all. Another part of my own stewardship is to follow Christ in baptism. This is something that we're going to witness today, actually. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. I'm reading from Mark Mark 1, verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is Christ. This is none other than Christ himself getting baptized. As Christians, Christ is our example. Amen? Jesus Christ himself got baptized by being immersed in water, and God confirmed his pleasure with that. Christ didn't need to be baptized for repentance. He did that to be an example. He did that to be an example that we would follow. So also, when we become a believer, we should follow him in baptism, reflecting our identification with Jesus Christ, And our belief that the death, burial, and resurrection covers all of our sins in God's sight. And that's also why we like to baptize people by immersion, right? Because they go under the water, symbol of Christ's death, come back up, a symbol of his resurrection. Amen? That's what we're doing when we get baptized. It's a total identification with Christ. Acts chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? About whom does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? He's reading from Isaiah. He needs help explain uh, someone to explain him what's going on. Philip is there. Verse thirty-five. Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip begins sharing the gospel with this eunuch from Ethiopia. And as they were going along the road, they came to water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So he's reading Isaiah. So apparently he's a student of the scriptures enough that he's reading Isaiah. And um, he's from Ethiopia, which means he's not Jewish. So he's he's a Gentile, so he wouldn't have been able to go into the temple and some other things. But he was at least a student of the scriptures. And um Immediately he knows he needs to be baptized from sharing the gospel. So this is an amazing story. But Philip shares the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch who served the queen as her royal treasurer. Philip must have included water baptism as part of the gospel. As part of the gospel. Philip must have shared water baptism. Because as soon as water was available, the Ethiopian says, hey, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And all the scripture says is that Philip shared the gospel. This is part of the gospel, my friend, that we get water baptized in identification with Jesus Christ. You don't need to wait for months or years to be baptized. You simply have to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we are on a simple trip, the Ethiopian and Philip, riding along, explaining the scriptures, and as soon as water comes, he gets baptized the same day. Not a month later, not years later, not after confirmation, not after you know so many things same day that he believed in Christ, he became water baptized. Amen? That's part of the gospel. Follow. Follow Christ in knowing God's word. Here's a good JBQ verse. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Amen? Why do we memorize the word? Why do we even read the word? It's so that we can know what God's expectations are. Here's our Heavenly Father, the love of our lives. The one who forgave us our two hundred thousand year debt that we could not pay, and all he asks is that I read the love letter that he sent me, and know what he know what he wants, knows what makes them happy. Luke chapter two, verses forty six to forty seven. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed by his understanding and his answers. Now, if you recall this story, it's Jesus. um, They had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. Family's on the way home. There's a whole congregation of them because they got three days away before they figured out Jesus was missing. How would you like to be Mary and Joseph and answer to God that you lost his son? Jesus is missing. They go back to the temple, and there he is sitting with the teachers of the law Asking them questions, responding to theirs. So there's this kind of a Jewish thing that goes on where, uh, today it's at 13. I'm not sure about Jesus' uh, day. It might have been 12. It could have been 13 too. But at any rate, Jesus is at the age of Jewish accountability. He's gonna. If he were alive today, he would have had a bar mitzvah and whatnot. He becomes a son of the commandment and he's personally responsible for keeping the Torah, the law of Moses. Now, and we can tell from this story. Jesus already understood the Word of God so well that the teachers of his de- day are amazed at his understanding of the Scriptures. Amazed at his understanding of the Scriptures. Jesus is our example. People should be amazed at our understanding of the Scriptures. We should know it so well that our unsaved friends should be able to come to us. Our unsaved co-workers should be able to come to us and say, You know, I know you know the Bible. Can you answer me this one question? They will come. They they want you to know. They want somebody to know. They want someone to decode the message that God has sent and help them to understand what is in the Scriptures. Second Timothy three fourteen to seventeen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Scripture makes you wise for salvation. Wise for salvation in Christ. If I could give all of you one gift, of all the spiritual gifts, of all the talent gifts, of all the financial gifts, if I could give you one gift and only one gift, I would give you the gift of an undying hunger for the Word of God. I would give you the gift of an undying hunger of the Word of God because with that you will be wise for salvation. With that you will be able to dig up and uncover everything else that you need to know to live a godly life. I would give you an undying hunger for the word of God. This is your life. This is your lifeline to your heavenly father. This is your lifeline to the holy one who died for you. This is your love letter from the Christ who loves you so much to forgive you that thousands of years of sin debt that you owe God and can never repay. I would give you a hunger for God's word. I would give you a hunger for God's word. Follow Christ in obeying his teaching. If you love me, says Jesus, you will keep my commandments. What more can we say? What more could we say? If we love him, we will keep his commandments. That behavior puts our love on display. That behavior puts our love on display. Not in a legalistic way where I'm just trying to check a box but in a heartfelt way where people know that I'm really, really in love with Jesus Christ. Follow Christ in prayer. Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, this was Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, shortly before he was captured and uh, taken to the cross the next day. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Martin Luther has a great uh, quote on prayer. It says, no human creature can believe how powerful prayer is and what is it able to affect. None but those who have learned it by experience. If you want to know the power of prayer, pray. Pray. We have lots of opportunities to come and pray for Saturday every month, uh, before every service. Sometimes they have special weeks of prayer, like the one coming up. Just pray, just pray. It doesn't have to be pastor praying for on your behalf, although he would love to do that. It doesn't have to be the elders praying on your behalf, although they would love to do that. But when you pray and you get your answers to prayer, you find out how powerful prayer really is. When your prayer gets answered, you find out how powerful prayer really is. There is no teacher like the voice of experience. Follow Christ in carrying your own cross and in dying to yourself. Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. It's not coming up, up there, but I see it down here. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Christianity is a life or death commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? We see it from many of our dear brothers and sisters who are literally dying for the Lord Jesus Christ around the world. There are somewhere between 90,000 and 120,000 people who die for Christ every single year. Every single year. They're put to death. Not just put in jail, put to death. Every single year, somewhere between 90,000 and 120,000 Christians Every single year. This is a life or death commitment to follow Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leave it an example you so that you may follow in his steps. So in everything Christ is our example. It's not the pastor, the elders, or another Christian, good or bad. It's Christ himself we must follow. Amen. I can't tell you how many people, sadly, who have told me, you know, I I would be a Christian except for Christians. You know, some hypocrite really upset them, and now they've, they've lost their way. But I'm sorry, that person was not your example. Christ is your example. Christ is your example. Yes, we should all be better examples, I agree. But nobody is our example except Jesus Christ. Nobody is our example except Jesus Christ. Follow Christ by expecting his return. Follow Christ by expecting his return. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Let yourselves be like men who wait for their master. He will come and return from the wedding, and when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and he will sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. Again, a picture of Christ uh, at the Last Supper, washing the feet of the disciples, and also a parable to be ready when Christ will come again because we are the bride that Christ is coming back for. Amen? All of us who know Jesus Christ, the church of the living God, is the bride that Jesus will come back for. Luke chapter 12, verses 38 uh, to 40 and if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. But now, but know this: that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you should be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Jesus is coming back someday. Jesus is coming back someday. If you if you do watch the news, it feels like it could be any day now because. It just seems like everything awful that could happen is happening, and Christ could come back at any time. His disciples then come and ask him in verse 41, Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise steward whom his master has made ruler over his household to give them their food, the portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all that he has. So just as in the parable uh, of the talents to the various servants, Jesus is coming back to look for his body, his bride, the church. And if we're busy doing the things that he has asked us to do, when his kingdom comes, he's going to have us to do more in his kingdom. Amen? Amen. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Whatever gift God has given you, use it. Whatever gift God has given you, use it. You know, don't say, well, I'm too experienced, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too this, I'm too that. Just use the gift that God has given you. Amen? And then um, to sum up before we go into a, a summary slide here. I think sometimes we feel like we have to know all the answers before we can serve. That's not true. That's not true. We can follow Christ by learning as we go. We can follow Christ by learning as we go. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Sometimes we don't learn what we need to know until later. We can't use what we think the little is that we know now as an excuse not to act on God's behalf. Amen? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know more than everyone who does not know him as Savior. You can be a witness to anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. You can share the experience that you've had coming to salvation in Christ and what it's meant to you with what you've got. There was a study done a while a long time ago, a Barna researcher, someone, and um, I'm trying to recall the exact amount of time, but basically they were telling that the people on on the whole, on the average, the Christians who win more people to Christ than anyone else tend to be the newest ones in Christ, the not the ones who've been believers the longest. The people who win people to Christ more than anyone else on the whole tend to be the newer believers in Christ, like within the first three years of salvation, than people who've been in in Christ for 30, 40 years. Why is that? Well, for one, they probably know more unbelievers (laughs) that they've been hanging out with. But they're also, they're ready to be used of God with that little knowledge that they know, and they share it with as many people as they can, say, guess what happened to me? Guess what happened to me? And what little they have learned they share, and it bears fruit. What little they have learned, they share, and it bears fruit. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a steward of the mysteries of God. It's a living and a learning relationship. I've been reading the Bible for decades, and I'm still learning about it. Be willing to be teachable. Be willing to be teachable by God's holy word. It's not just about the doctrines of men. It's about the word of God. It's about the word of God. So many people, like they're the ones who are able to judge the Bible. Oh, I see this and I see that and I see the other thing. But one day, brother, sister, we're going to stand before God and his holy word and it's going to judge us. It's going to judge us. Which side of that equation do you want to land on? Do you want to land on the side that's judging the Bible or the one who already knows that the Bible will one day judge you? I hope that you can say, like Joshua of old did, we won't serve the idols of the old country and we won't serve the idols of the new country, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So in summary... As a steward, let's be careful and responsible to manage what's been entrusted to our care by God. In our finances, I will be generous. I will plan for the future. In our feelings, I will be a thermostat, and I will set a positive default emotion each day. And in faith, I will accept responsibility for my spiritual life of myself, my family, and my congregation. Amen? Amen. And I'll invite pastor and those who are helping with baptism to come at this time.